North American English settlements, you know, don't even exist yet. And Mexico is trading with Asia and is like, you know, one of the global entrepots where goods are, are bought and sold and traded. Um, and so there's a whole story of what's going on in other parts of the hemisphere long before um, the English arrive. Hello, and welcome to Things, a global conversation presented by Old Salem Museums and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. My name is Daniel Ackerman, and I'm the Interim Chief Curator at Old Salem Museums and Gardens and MESDA. In each episode of Things, we aim to use objects to draw out larger connections between people and places across historical, geographic, social, and political lines. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at a pair of objects that originated, in their own ways, in the mountains of Peru and reflect the globalization of the 17th and 18th century world. Joining us for our conversation tonight are Gary Albert, Director of MESDA Research and the Adjunct Curator of Silver, who's coming to us live this evening from the Thomas A. Gray Rare Book Room at MESDA, and Dennis Carr, the Virginia Steele Scott Chief Curator of American Art at the Huntington Library Art Museum of Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California. For those of you joining us live this evening, we'll welcome your questions at the end of the program. You can just type them in the Q&A. And I'm thrilled to say that tonight we have nearly 50 people joining us, including folks from 12 states and at least one other country. We'll begin this evening with Gary Albert and one of the most recognizable objects in the Mesda collection, one of our two um, Petri coffee pots made in Charleston, South Carolina. Gary is the director of Mesda Research, editor of the Mesda Journal, and our adjunct curator of silver and metals. For nearly two decades, Gary served as director of publications at MESDA, where he oversaw a number of major projects, including John Bivens and Brad Rauschenberg's three-volume set, The Furniture of Charleston, as well as the editorial process of the MESDA Journal, now celebrating its 45th year of publication. He also spearheaded the effort to digitize our signature research databases, the MESDA Craftsman Database and the MESDA Object Database. Gary is um, just last year was named Director of Research, a new role that recognizes the close link between our digital research resources and our scholarly publishing program. Gary is also currently serving with the Consortium of Online Decorative Arts Databases, or CODA, a multinational group developing cross-platform standards for online decorative arts resources. Back in 2013, Gary took on yet another task as adjunct curator of silver and metals at MESDA in recognition of his deep knowledge and expertise in that area. Since then, he's overseen the growth research, exhibition, and cataloging of that collection. Gary, thank you so much for starting us off tonight in this episode of Things. I can't wait to hear more about the Petrie Coffee Pot. And just a reminder again, for anyone joining us live, if you have any specific questions for Gary or for Dennis later on, we'll be happy to address them in a little while during our discussion. Just type them into the Q&A. Gary, good evening. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, really appreciate it. And I'm excited to be here tonight. And um, I thank everybody who's joined us as well as with Den, uh, 
thank Dennis. So I'm going to begin our conversation about globalization today with this silver coffee pot. It was made about 1750 in the Charleston, South Carolina shop of silversmith Alexander Petrie. Now, Charleston at the time was a valuable jewel in the crown of Britain's global empire. The colony had been established by English subjects from the Caribbean island of Barbados in the 1670s. Within a few decades, peoples of British, French, German, Swiss, and African origins were found within the Charleston district, and it was still home to the indigenous peoples such as the Wando, Edisto, Stono, and Kiowa, who had inhabited the region for centuries. The colony's wealth came from the production of rice and indigo, both crops imported from West Africa and cultivated by enslaved Africans brought to Carolina. And the region was a significant part of the business of trafficking those African slaves. Planters in South Carolina were also experimenting with sericulture or silk production from Asia. And although, although their attempts were never commercially successful, this dress seen on the left was made from silk grown on Eliza Lucas Pinckney's plantation from her silkworms. By 1750, Charleston was the wealthiest city per capita in British North America. The consumerism that followed that success brought into Charleston's wharves, not only those enslaved people from Africa, but also fine finished goods from England and Europe, sugar and exotic lumber from the Caribbean and tea, silk and porcelains from Asia. And most pertinent to our conversation today, into the wharves in the port of Charleston came chocolate from South and Central America and coffee from the Middle East and Africa. The introduction of caffeinated beverages such as tea, coffee, and chocolate to Europe during the 16th century created a proliferation of silver objects for the consumption of coffee, tea, and chocolate. Which brings us back to Mezda's silver coffee pot, which we know is a coffee pot based on its tall cylindrical shape. In comparison, teapots of the mid 18th century were almost always short and bulbous. And chocolate pots are very similar in form to coffee pots, coffee pots, but there will be a hole in the lid to insert a rod to stir the chocolate. And in this example from the Victoria and Albert Museum, the finial flips up on the lid of the coffee pot to insert that stir. Mezda's coffee pot is struck four times on its base with the mark of Alexander Petrie's shop, a capital A, a pellet, and a P. We are privileged at Mezda to exhibit not only another silver coffee pot by Petrie, but several other examples of his shop's silver work as well, including a salver or small tray seen in the middle on the bottom row that served as the museum's logo for many, many years. But can we say for certain that Alexander Petrie made these silver objects in the 1750s and 1760s? The historical record suggests that as Petrie became more and more involved in land speculation and other business ventures, his shop was being operated by someone else. That other silversmith was a man named Abraham, 
who was enslaved by Alexander Petrie. This is a detail from Petrie's estate inventory taken after his death in 1768. Highlighted is Abraham, identified as a silversmith and valued at 400 pounds. And you'll look above and below Abraham, you'll see other skilled individuals in Petrie's inventory, including carpenters named Tom and Jupiter, valued at 500 pounds each, Joe, a barber, Orinuk, a tailor, and a fisherman named Caesar, who is valued at 650 or $350. The silversmith Abraham continued to produce work in Charleston after Petrie's death because he was purchased from Petrie's estate by Jonathan Sarazen, a silversmith who worked in Charleston well into the 1780s. Skilled black craftspeople were not uncommon in 18th century Charleston or America in general. And if you're interested in learning more about these men and women, I cannot recommend enough the Black Craftsman Digital Graph Black Craftspeople's Digital Archive, available for free online at www.blackcraftspeople.org. So, we've discussed how Charleston, South Carolina was an important port city that participated in 18th century globalization through agriculture and trade. But by now you're probably wondering how this coffee pot made in Charleston, South Carolina probably by an enslaved African silversmith named Abraham, what it has to do with a textile made in Spanish Peru that Dennis is gonna talk about. The answer is the silver used to make the coffee pot. You may be surprised to learn that the raw ore used to make nearly all silver objects in the 18th century, such as Mezda's coffee pot, came from a single mine in Spanish Peru. Whether made directly from silver bars or coins or indirectly through melting down old or broken silver, for nearly three centuries, the vast majority of silver used by silversmiths and jewelers around the world came from one silver mine. That mine and the city that grew around it was and is named Potosi. Silver was discovered at Potosi in 1545 and it quickly became a source of immense wealth for Spain and the, and the fuel for its religious wars against Protestants in the Netherlands and elsewhere. Located high in the Andes Mountains in what is now Bolivia, Potosi's mines were connected by Spain by connected to Spain by a vast and arduous network of trade routes. The delivery of silver from Potosi to Madrid took years. Silver would be packed onto the backs of llamas and caravan from Potosi to the port of Lima a thousand miles and six month journey away. Then the silver was placed on a northbound ship to Panama where it was carried overland to the Caribbean side to be stowed on a galleon sailing east towards Spain. The mountain is still being mined for silver today, but both the mountain and the city has paid a dear price over the past 475 years. The high desert environment surrounding the mines has suffered greatly with nearly all vegetation and wildlife having long been eradicated and toxic pollution rampant because mercury is a key component for refining silver. The mines in the city are also a tragic place of untold misery for humans from the Inca forced to work the mines and mercury reservoirs to enslaved Africans and all the way to the indigenous people scraping together a livelihood today 
in a barren and remote city, working under dangerous conditions for very little pay. So that's how we get from a silver Charleston coffee pot made in the 1750s to South America in the 16th century. Now I'm going to defer to Dennis Carr, who knows vastly more about Spanish Peru than I ever will, to continue the story about Potosi and its global importance, including how silver from its mines reached across the Pacific Ocean and engaged the continent of Asia in its global web of commerce and culture. Thank you so much, Gary. That was absolutely fascinating. And what a way to weave together all of those strands um, into this single object that we're all so familiar with seeing, but maybe haven't thought about in all those different ways. Um, well, now joining us from beautiful San Marino, California, is Dennis Carr. Uh, Dennis was named the Virginia Steele Scott Chief Curator of American Art at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Garden in 2019. Now, before that, he was on the other coast, the East Coast, in Boston, as the Carolyn and Peter Lynch Curator of American Decorative Arts and Sculpture at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And it's from the MFA's collection that his thing tonight comes from. At the MFA, Dennis was part of the team that reoriented the museum's American galleries to have a more hemispheric focus. He is well known as a leading proponent of the idea of a, quote, vast early America, this idea that it's important to contextualize British North America within the larger frameworks of colonialisms in the Americas generally, especially Latin America. In 2015, he curated the exhibit Made in the Americas, The New World Discovers Asia, which explores the profound role that Asian arts played in the colonial Americas. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk about another somewhat different kind of thing. Hi, Daniel. It's great to be with you and with uh, Gary um, this evening for you and for this afternoon for me. I'm going to start by sharing my screen and um, keep our conversation down in um, Peru. This object, which is one of my favorite objects from my time working at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, is a textile from the late 17th or the early 18th century. It's woven with um, both camelid fibers and silk. Camelid fibers uh, are usually um, uh, fibers taken from endemic um, species of animals, mostly alpacas or llamas or vicuñas. Vicuñas have the finest fiber or the finest kind of hair, and that's probably what this is woven out of. And then this is also about 50% silk, which is quite um, remarkable. It was made in a workshop um, in colonial Peru, and um, it's like the, the coffee pot made out of silver, which would have been for an, um, an Anglo user, one of the kind of the more expensive things that one could own, silver was a liquid commodity and was highly prized. And you always see silver listed among, you know, the very, the most expensive objects in an inventory. But in colonial Peru, a textile would have been among the very, you know, the most um, expensive objects, something like this. So this cover, that's about 80 inches wide, would have been, you know, considered a luxury item. So what really is interesting about this particular example, and there are many fine examples that survive from um, colonial Peru, um, and I'm gonna turn it on its side for you and focus on a couple of the details. 
the figures in um, the textile are a mixture of both European images, but also images from Asia. So in the center and on the corners of each of the elements are peony flowers, like I have on the screen. We also see um, paired phoenix birds flying around the central peony flower. Um, the one at the top is flying in an inverted position as you typically see um, in both um, Chinese silks, but also Chinese ceramics. It also has a very unusual um, mythical creature called a xiezhu, which is um, a, a creature that you might find in Chinese literature from the 14th or 15th century. It's a, a mythical creature that um, could uh, uh, kind of uh, be a judge between good and evil. And you'll see it here depicted in white. And that looks like there's kind of flames emanating from the body, has big claws and big teeth. And that's typically how these um, animals um, are depicted in Chinese textiles. But it also has images um, of, of animals and probably plants that would have been more familiar to a local audience. And this um, creature, which you see on the small borders around the textile is called a viscacha, which is a small um, furry long-eared rodent that runs around uh, the Andes and would have been immediately recognizable to a local audience. So how is it that this luxury object made in Peru in the 17th or early 18th century, not that many years before our silver uh, coffee pot uh, came about and how is it that it has so many Asian images on it? Well, it's uh, of course one of these uh, global objects that could not have existed before uh, transatlantic and trans-Pacific trade really gets underway um, in the late 15th and into the 16th century. And what's interesting about um, the Americas and particularly Peru is that it was linked not only to Europe across the Atlantic, but also across the Pacific to Asia. And you can see some of the lines on the map. The lines in red denote the Spanish trade. And you'll note that um, there is Spanish trade across the Pacific and across the Atlantic. Um, and on the on the eastern side of the Americas, in the Atlantic, you'll see the English trade in blue, um, the Dutch trade in orange, and the Portuguese trade in green. And while the English, the Dutch, and the Portuguese took the Western routes from Asia, the Spanish took the Eastern routes, and they would collect um, goods from across Asia, from China, from Japan, from the Philippines. Their ships would leave Manila in the Philippines, sail eastward across the Pacific, make landfall, probably not too far away from where I am now in California, they would go down the coast and then offload their goods once a year in Acapulco, Mexico. And then those Asian goods would either be dispersed throughout Latin America or they'd be loaded on ships in Veracruz, which is on the Eastern side of Mexico, sail to Havana, Cuba. And then from Havana, Cuba, they would make their way to Spain. So all of the Asian goods that were intended for Spain had to transit through the Americas first. And as a result, many goods ended up staying in the Americas and many of them had a dramatic impact on artistic production um, in different parts of Latin America from the 16th century onward. And this trade begins roughly around 1565 or so, you know, long before the pilgrims arrived in New, in New England, um, places like Mexico are trading directly with Asia. And this trade continues for about 250 years, almost unbroken 
uh, until um, the revolutionary period in Latin America, which begins around 1815. So roughly between 1565 and 1815, there are yearly um, cargoes that are going back and forth from the Americas to Asia. And so what's driving this trade? Uh, it's basically um, the Spanish, the silver that's coming out of the Spanish mines in Potosi, as Gary mentioned, which was a massive mine in Peru that we're gonna talk about in a little bit, but also the mines in Mexico, and those mines really gear up in the more in the 18th century. And the, the, the statistics are, are a little bit unclear, but something like maybe upwards of 40% of the silver that's mined in the Americas during the colonial period or vice regal period doesn't end up going to Europe. It actually goes west across the Pacific to Asia. And it's around the time in the 16th century and a little bit later that China is developing a silver-based economy. And whereas before China had been getting a lot of its silver from Japan, it's really the Peruvian silver in the 16th century that begins to feed um, the growing Chinese economy. So this story could have been you know, told a few years ago, but this is a 16th century story. So this is really the first era of globalism um, when the kind of the, the economic markets and the trade markets are really um, interlinked and are global are working on a global scale. So what, the, what happens is this, the, the silver flowing out of the mines in Potosi gives um, people in Peru extremely high buying power in places like China and Asia. And the object on the left is a small porcelain plate that we think was made around 1588 to 1593. Um, it was found at a small auction um, in England um, People hadn't identified anything about it. They just thought it was a typical kind of Chinese export porcelain plate. Well, the fellow who acquired it and now owns it um, did some research on the coat of arms. And what he discovered is that the arms on the left are those of the first viceroy uh, or one of the viceroy of, of the viceroyalty of Peru at the end of the 16th century, 1588 to 93, um, Garcia Hurtado de Mendoza. And the arms on the right are those of his wife. And what's interesting about this plate is that it's probably the first uh, piece of Chinese export porcelain, or the earliest one at least that survives, that bears a Spanish coat of arms. And it was ordered not from Spain, but from Lima, Peru. And the piece on the right is a portable altar. This is the kind of thing that would have been made in Japan. It's inlaid with mother of pearl, but also decorated with gold, often called Namban decoration. And so in the, in the early years when Japan was open to um, trade from Europe, uh, a number of these Namban um, altars like this is a very small object. It's just, you know, maybe a foot or so tall, maybe about five inches deep. Um, these kinds of things are flooding into the Americas. And this particular object, which was made around 1600, is documented in Mexico in the 1780s. So we know specifically that it was in Mexico by at least that date and probably much earlier. There are also um, a lot of silk textiles that are coming from China that are flooding into the Peruvian market. And the piece on the left is not from Peru, but is, um, well, made in China, it, it, um, it, it appears in an inventory in 1616 in Japan. And it's one of the export textiles that is um, flowing through the Asian markets. And the reason I show it on the screen is that when you compare it side by side with the Peruvian textile, you can see exactly where the Peruvian artists get their 
um, their, their patterns from the source material to create a textile. Um, these two objects are almost precisely the same size. You'll notice that the borders are roughly the same and that the central image, image is also pretty similar, a peony flower in the center uh, flanked by um, phoenix birds. But then you have also the chiezure characters and other animals around the borders. And while none of these Chinese silk textiles survives today in Peru, the evidence that they were there is, are the textiles like those on the right, um, which indicate that Peruvian artists were copying directly from imported objects, but also adding their own little twist, the Viscacha figures, some of the European figures that would not have appeared on the Chinese textile, the original ones. So um, as Gary mentioned, um, Potosi beginning in 1545 um, with the discovery of silver there by the Spanish um, becomes one of the, um, the kind of the, it's a, the largest kind of silver deposit ever discovered in the world up until that moment. And it supplied much of the world's silver for hundreds of years. In the 16th century, it, it supplied at least 60% of the world's silver. And then into the 17th and 18th century, the production decreased steadily. And as Gary mentioned, they're still mining out of the same hill, the Cerro in Peru, often called the Rich Hill, but it attracted a lot of attention. Um, it, was, it was pretty ghastly work. Um, the Spanish in, used indigenous, uh, basically slave labor initially, and then eventually um, started importing African slaves to work the mines. And it was, um, it was terrible labor, but it, it really drove, the silver coming out of the mine at Potosi really drove the world economy for centuries and made Spain, um, you know, one of, the one of the world's first truly global powers. So to give you a sense, um, just to kind of cover some of the same ground that Gary mentioned, but just how the silver makes its way from Peru, it's loaded on ships up to Panama, then taken overland, and those ships would then sail to Havana, Cuba. And then the, the silver coming out of the mines in central Mexico, like Guanajuato and northward from Mexico City, um, those really come online more in the 18th century and even kind of in, in some ways overtake the amount of silver that's coming out of Peru by the 18th century. And so, you know, around the time that the coffee pot was made, um, Mexico was supplying a lot of silver, as was Peru um, from the New World. And um, the Mexican silver would be shipped overland to Veracruz and then would take the same route as those um, Chinese objects or Asian objects from Veracruz to Havana and then from Havana uh, to Spain. So I've heard sto stories of, you know, at any one time, there would be something like 30 Spanish galleons in port at Havana, um, ready to sail eastward uh, to uh, Spain, laden with goods collected from across the Americas, but also um, collected from um, Asia as well. So if you know anything about, uh, early American economies, you'll know that the Spanish piece of eight was like by far the most preferred currency. Um, it had the highest level of silver content. It was the most trustworthy. Um, it was widely in circulation, both in Europe um, and throughout the Americas. And so um, you'll often see in colonial records in North America, people often referring to Spanish pieces of eight um, as the best currency and the most desirable currency. And so 
oftentimes finished silver objects like the coffee pot would have been made of melted down uh, coinage like what you see on the screen. These, this coin happens to come from Mexico um, and it was made in 1739. Also in the earliest years, um, the Spanish are melting down indigenous metalwork. Um, indigenous craftsmen throughout the Americas really focused in Central America and parts of South America, but also a little bit into Mexico. Um, were some of the world's great metalsmiths. They had developed thousands, you know, a long, long time before the Spanish arrived. You know, most of all, the most advanced uh, metal, metallurgical techniques um, and systems of alloying, um, cold hammering, casting, uh, doing all kinds of things, um, treating the outside with acid, um, for what's called depletion gilding. They were doing all these things long before the Europeans arrived and they were expert at working both in silver and in gold. And in the earliest years of the Spanish um, viceregal period, a lot of indigenous silver and gold was melted down um, into the gold bars um, or the ingots that Gary showed before and then sent to Spain. So it also could be that in a roundabout way that silver coffee pot could have come from indigenous pre-Hispanic uh, silver as well. It's really, it's, it would be a little bit hard to tell, but it's certainly possible. Um, also, Mexico and Peru are supplying Europe with some spectacular silver objects because there were just so much silver flowing, the, flowing through the Americas and many, many, many trained, many indigenous silversmiths. Um, Spanish um, patrons were, were commissioning from um, craftsmen in the Americas objects like this silver lamp. This is a lamp made in Mexico, we think from around 1637. It's very, very large. It's another object that I worked on in Boston. We were able to acquire it a few years before um, I came here to Los Angeles. And it has a history in a Spanish uh, church or cofradía in Southern Spain as early as 1637. And so rather than going to local silversmiths, Spanish were often um, commissioning works like this. Um, from American silversmiths. Um, and sometimes these things were melted down as well. So this is another possible source. Another possible source is either uh, shipwreck silver or silver that's been privateered or, or basically pirated. And this is an interesting object um, that came across uh, my desk re uh, recently. It, it dates to before, um, I think before 1641, um, and it's a typical Spanish drinking vessel, quite small with two handles on, on e either side. But what's really interesting about it is the inscription in the center. And I'm going to read the inscription to you. It says, this plate was taken up the fifth day of February, 1688 to 89 by William Robinson out of a Spanish wreck lost in 1640 on the North Reef, North Northwest of Cape um, Cabarón in Hispaniola in five fathoms of water. And this refers to a shipwreck from many years before, um, a ship that sank in 1641. It was the Nuestra Señora de la Pura y Limpia Concepción that sank in July of 1641 in a hurricane off the coast of Hispaniola. And there are tales of English, um, you know, salvaging these early, early wrecks and then melting down uh, silver to make other objects or to, you know, to circulate. But it's very rare to see something like this, where you, 
you know, you can absolutely date it and know exactly the person who um, salvaged this wreck. So this is a really, really cool um, and amazing object. So this gets us back to the coffee pot. Um, there's a lot of silver circulating the world in the 18th century. Some of it's coming from Central Europe. A lot of it's coming from the Americas. Um, it's circulating through Asia and back again. And um, it'd be really interesting if ever we would be able to know exactly where the silver um, came from for this particular object. But I, su I suspect it was from many different sources. And all these sources tell a really interesting story about globalization in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I'll, I'll just end with one final object, which was an, an object that I also work with in Boston, which was um, a coffee pot probably made around the same time as the coffee pot from South Carolina on the left. Um, but it was made in Antigua, Guatemala. And we, we don't know the exact silversmith. We know it was made in Guatemala because it's marked with a Guatemala stamp, but it has this beautiful Rococo decoration on the outside of it that relates um, much more closely to London silver than it, than it does to Spanish silver at the same time. And it's actually, it's very, very rare to find a repoussé Rococo ornament on an American object. There are very few objects. Um, there's one here at the Huntington actually that's made by Samuel Casey in Newport um, or Little Rest, um, Rhode Island. But what's especially interesting to me about um, the Charleston coffee pot is because it has this spectacular Rococo decoration. And it reminded me a lot of this piece from Guatemala. And today we drink a lot of coffee from Guatemala. If you go to Starbucks, a lot of the coffee comes from Antigua, Guatemala, which is not too far away from where this um, coffee pot would have been made. Um, and it was just in the, you know, the beginning of the 19th century that Latin America um, begins to grow coffee. It's not native to the Americas at all, but it's imported and it's, it's grown like sugarcane is not native to the Caribbean either, but it's grown in the Caribbean um, in large plantations. Coffee has grown in large plantations um, and thus has borne um, the story of drinking coffee in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then the kind of movement of this new crop to the Americas and you know, it's where we often associate it today. So that's, um, that's my tale of this amazing Peruvian textile and, um, and these pair of coffee pots. Thank you so much, Dennis. I mean, that was fascinating, especially at the end where you um, were able to bring in the other coffee pot with the Rococo decoration. Of course, we could go down a whole sort of um, line of inquiry around the Rococo and Reposé work and all that. But um, let's go ahead and bring Gary Albert back into the room and for those who are joining us live, uh, feel free to pose your questions in the Q&A. Um, yeah, I'd like to start really by asking you both, um, you know, we have Potosi and the Vice Royalty of Peru and Lima on one hand, and then we have British North America and Charleston on the other. If, if you were to um, be walking in the marketplace of either city in about 1750, I mean, where, what kinds of goods am I seeing? What sort of things are just obviously hitting me from these global trade networks? Dennis, you wanna take that yeah, one? Yeah, I can take that question. It's an interesting question. Um, there, there is a, a really good quote about um, Mexico City in, you know, at, at the turn of the 17th century. Um, and it basically, describes what could be found in the market. And it's, it's everything in the world 
from pearls to wax from Asia to shells to, you know, elaborate objects from Europe. And, and the, the writer of this tale basically says, you know, Mexico City, um, where East and West meet. And this idea of a global crossroads is, is really nothing new, but um, to us today, but it, it was kind of new at the beginning of the 17th century. And, um, and when you think, what's interesting to me is that, you know, the North American English settlements, you know, don't even exist yet. And Mexico is trading with Asia and is like, you know, one of the global entrepots where goods are, are bought and sold and traded. Um, and so there's a whole story of what's going on in other parts of the hemisphere long before um, the English arrive. Um, but then, then the English who kind of come into the global trade late, it's really the, the Portuguese first and then the Spanish uh, and then the Dutch and then the English. And the English by the 18th century really take over. And that is like their, you know, the, I wouldn't say golden age, but that's really their, um, it's, it's like, the, you know, they're at the top of the market at that point. And that's really, to answer your question, Daniel, that's around 1750 would be the moment when the English are really deeply engaged in this global trade. And that's the moment when this coffee pot is made, right, Gary? Yes, exactly. And I, was, I would absolutely um, agree with what Dennis was saying. In Charleston, though, I think what you're missing is the whole Trans-Pacific trade in the 1750s. That doesn't hit Charleston until later. Um, so you're seeing a lot of the Caribbean, the European goods, raw materials, um, African and South American things. But what makes Mexico City and Spanish Peru so amazing is that trans-Pacific as well as the transatlantic trade coming together in those ports. Yeah, most, I mean, you're, the English colonies are receiving Asian goods at a very early date. There are examples of, you know, Chinese porcelain in the 17th century in New England. And there's, there's a famous poem about somebody, you know, uh, uh, I forget exactly where he's located, but he's holding up a piece of Chinese porcelain and musing on its translucence and its beauty in the 17th century. But an object like that would not have come directly to Massachusetts or wherever in New England. It would have transited through England first. So everything was indirect for a while until after the American Revolution. But yeah, what you're you're right. But for the for the Spanish territories and then also the Portuguese territory in Brazil, they're receiving direct trade right from Asia at an extremely early date. Yeah, yeah. I think it's that Pacific trade that people really don't really don't recognize um, as well as they should, nor the the um, the size and economic power of um, Latin America in this period. Um, most people, I think, who are probably listening tonight, you know, it's 1492, and then 1607, then 1620, then 1776. Like, there's a whole lot of time in there with um, cities that are just huge. I mean, I don't know the exact comparison, but Boston versus Mexico City in 1750. I mean, they're, they're orders of magnitude different, right, in terms of size? Well, yeah, Potosi itself. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Potosi... I think had about 160,000 residents in the year 1600. Yep, that's about right. Again, before the English arrived, I mean, yeah, before the English arrived, basically. 160,000, that makes it one of the largest cities in the world. Now, a lot of that population is enslaved working in the mines. So it's not the, it's not the best comparison, but, you know, uh, Mexico City was very, very large. 
um, Lima or Cusco in an early date was large. Havana, Cuba was actually quite large. So even Havana had a larger population than Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston at a, you know, in the 18th century, because it, Havana is like the transit point for all this trade going east and west. Um, so and yeah, so the English colonies are dwarfed in size by the big metropolitan areas in places like Mexico. But, and then think Mexico City, even before the Spanish arrived, that was the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, which had, I, I don't know the exact number, but it easily had 100,000 residents, you know, in, in the 15th century. It was a massive city and it controlled its own empire that spanned most of central Mexico into southern Mexico. Um, and then likewise, the, 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 the Inca city, Inca capital city, um, controlled an empire that stretched for about 3000 miles north and south. I mean, it's really, it's, it's unbelievable. The population numbers, um, even before Europeans arrive in the 15th century. Janice, can you talk a little bit about the Incan, uh, the, the labor system It's the Mita or the Maita? I can't remember. How was it pronounced? Yeah. So there is, there are a lot of, um, pre-Hispanic, um, empires are built on labor systems and enforced labor. And so basically um, these large empires would expand quickly, not necessarily by um, violent conquest of a neighboring group, but through economic control and the trade of tribute back and forth. So um, there was a tribute system that sent laborers to work in this case for the Inca um, kind of central government. And it was like this loose network of uh, people that fell under the umbrella of the Inca empire, but they kind of let them do that. They had their own, um, some, oftentimes their own leaders, they had their own customs and traditions. And sometimes some of those things get smoothed out by the Inca and imperial state, but the Inca empire was only a hundred years old by the time the Spanish arrived. It was like a flash in the pan um, it just happened to be that the Inca were in power when, you know, at that moment when the Spanish made it to Peru. Um, but it wasn't a very long lasting empire, but it was a very broadly, um, broad empire geographically. But it's this labor system that then gets reincorporated into the Spanish colonial system where there, there are so few Spanish to rule thousands of miles of territory and they just couldn't do it. So they often relied on indigenous systems of labor, including this one. Um, which was like, a, it wasn't quite enslavement, but it was very close. And then towards the end of the Spanish rule, it was really, 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 really close. <laughs> yeah. To awesome. And so, um, you know, this is, I think, one of the key differences between um, colonialism as practiced in Latin America and colonialism as practiced in British North America, the relationship to the indigenous population, um, also the reliance in, di in different ways in different times on enslaved labor. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about, about that. I mean, when, when do we see the transition from enslaved indigenous labor to enslaved African labor, or is it just sort of a gradual, um, a gradual process? That's an interesting question. Um, the importation of African slaves happens in the 16th century um, at a, I would pretty, pretty high numbers. I don't have them right at my fingertips, but I would pretty large numbers. However, um, it was quickly determined that it wasn't very economically viable in Latin America. Um, uh, and in parts of, I would say in Mexico specifically. So by the 
by the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th century, they begin to move away from imported African labor and rely on indigenous um, uh, labor as part of the encomienda system, where it's kind of, I would, it's, I wish I'd, I thought about this a little bit more, but I, I always think about like, it's kind of like a feudal system in a way where people are tied to the land and tied to specific plantations or, or places where, where there's large areas of land holding and um, cultivation taking place. But a lot of it um, is, I would say a good percentage of it is indigenous as opposed to African. However, however, um, there are a lot of African slaves working in um, Portuguese Brazil and I think the numbers of African slaves in Brazil, I think, as I understand it, kind of dwarf what happens in British North America, maybe with the exception of the Caribbean. Um, but there's a, a huge number of African uh, slaves who are working on plantations on the on the eastern side of Brazil. So I, I'd like to turn from the sort of labor that made the wealth possible to the labor that that powers these workshops, the, the workshop where the where, where Dennis, your textile was made and Gary, the workshop where the silver coffee pot was made. Um, who are the artisans in those places? You want me to start in Charleston? Well, yeah. So Alexander Petrie is the example that we're using here. Um, he was Scottish born, came to Charleston. Um, like many craftspeople that came to Charleston, they were attracted to the uh, economic mobility of the society. Um, carpenters, cabinet makers, silversmiths, uh, tailors. The goal was not to stay as that skilled laborer for very long. It was to make enough money to move up into business and then eventually become a planter. And that's what we saw with Alexander Petrie. We see it um, with other silversmiths in the mid 18th century in Charleston, um, Thomas Yu, a uh, French Huguenot um, uh, of French Huguenot descent. He was born in the Carolinas, doing the same thing. By the time they've established their business, they begin buying land, speculating in land, then purchasing um, and hiring out enslaved um, individuals. And then hopefully at some point becoming what they called was a gentleman or a planter. So the silversmiths usually started at the top of the list because silversmithing was kind of considered a clean trade um, because silver is currency. So you, your reputation as a silversmith was your greatest asset. And um, that was really why you kind of started on the upper end of the, the social class, at least if you were a silversmith. So Alexander Peachy was following um, a traditional path of Charleston's uh, craftspeople that we see coming in in the mid 18th century. Come in, do your do your business, establish your trade, and then start buying land, start acquiring enslaved people, and using those to build your way up to becoming a planter. Does that answer your question? I think so. And um, and Dennis, so yeah. I mean, these textile workshops in uh, Peru, what what's the what's the sort of artisan system there? Who are the people doing this work? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm going to start with silversmithing, which I know a little bit better, um, and I'll move to textile production. But in silversmithing, um, there were workshops that were started, you know, within only a small number of years after the Spanish conquest of, um, of the Aztec empire. And 
there are a lot of Spanish silversmiths coming over, silversmiths from the Canary Islands, and but also Spain, um, working. And we have we know that because we have their names in the records. We also have um, pieces that are marked by them. And so there's this big kind of industry. If you're a silversmith in Spain, and they've just discovered like one of the largest deposits in the world, you're, you're going to get on the next boat and go. Um, and so there's these workshops begin very early, but at the same time, um, the Spanish are often relying on indigenous craftspeople to produce all manner of goods, silvering, silversmithing, but every textile production, um, uh, making maps, painting pictures, building houses and building everything. A, a lot of it is, re, is reliant on indigenous labor. As I mentioned before, there were so few Spaniards who came to the Americas that they relied you know, on, in huge measure on indigenous labor and indigenous expertise. That's a different story than what happens in British North America. Um, and so what you see in um, Latin America is that many of the objects um, show a strong um, presence of indigenous uh, craftsmanship, indigenous style, even indigenous language or ways of representing space um, that, you know, last well, well into the colonial period. And that's what, for me, as a decorative arts historian, really interesting about this because you really see the strong presence of indigenous labor and indigenous um, artistic traditions that you don't see in North, British North America. Um, and, and then early on in the 16th century, they start to form guilds for Spanish craftsmen, Spanish silversmith, and then indigenous or mixed race um, craftsmen. And the reason you know this, the reason they're making guilds is that there's competition. They don't do it just because they want to, they do it to protect um, their businesses. And um, so just the presence alone of these guilds that are that are popping up shows you how much competition there was out there. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't be surprised if that large hanging silver lamp that I showed in my presentation, I couldn't say specifically, but given where it comes from and the date and everything, I would not be surprised if that's not made by an indigenous, out of an indigenous workshop. That would be very typical. Um, for that, but you see furniture makers, there's lots of indigenous furniture makers, silversmiths, you know, everything across the board. And then in terms of textile production, um, you know, they had developed very refined, extremely sophisticated weaving techniques in um, Peru, um, going back for thousands of years. Some of the finest textiles in the world 2000 years ago were made in Peru and um, many of them survive in remarkably good conditions, so we're able to study them in depth. And so, again, it's a similar kind of story. The Europeans arrived and they're reliant on indigenous um, knowledge of textile weaving. And I couldn't say for sure exactly where that textile came out of that I showed. I suspect that it might have come out of um, a workshop that was, uh, that was supported by um, a convent. There's a number of, there's evidence that there were convent workshops supported by Spanish missionaries or European missionaries, and were using indigenous artists to create these spectacular luxury objects that would then be sold or traded away. So I suspect, I would think that we're, you know, we're looking at a, a relatively small workshop, but one that's very well funded, um, that has access to luxury materials, silk from China. Um, remember I said it was half silk and half camelid fiber. So they're getting that, that silk is not coming local and not being made locally. It was interesting to hear, Gary, your comment about the attempts at silk production. They did the same thing in Peru, but it didn't work. So they, they relied on imported Chinese silk and there were tons, there were lots of um, 
you know, silk textiles that were being imported, but also um, silk thread that was being imported and then, you know, woven into these, um, the textile like I showed. So anyway, that's a long answer, but. Yeah, well, I actually thought it was really interesting that you brought up the question about, um, I brought up the, the, the topic of religion and that, you know, there's the, the possible connection to a sort of um, convent workshop. And I think religion, you know, we think about physical things moving through space, but, you know, religion is also a major um, object, if you will. Um, that is moving through both of these spaces, but very differently, right? I mean, uh, Charleston is basically anything but Catholic, and um, Latin America is Catholic only, and so you know, religion plays a pretty big role too in in how these places develop. Yes. So yeah, in my own. If in my case, I'll answer quickly. Um, the Jesuits in particular played a, a really strong role in the globalization of trade in this period. The Jesuits um, were extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, and had their own um, kind of outposts throughout Asia, the Americas, and Europe. And they were trading between many of them. And that, that, that Japanese lacquer work that I showed, the small altar, the top of it has the Jesuit seal so it was likely commissioned in Japan by the Jesuits and then found its way across the Pacific to Mexico City. Um, and so, and the Jesuits were also operating um, in the really, really remote areas of Bolivia, which is now, you know, where Potosí is. It's in modern day Bolivia, not in Peru. And it was in Vice Regal Peru at the time. And they, the, the Jesuits were operating in these remote areas and then commissioning from local artists things to um, fill their churches. So a lot of the material culture, furniture, silver, things that survive from this time period and this place made by indigenous craftsmen commissioned by the Jesuits. That's great. And I can speak a little bit to what Daniel was saying about in the Carolina colony, especially early on in the early 18th century, late 17th century, that religious tolerance was really to kind of pull it all together. Um, they were accepting uh, everybody except Catholics because they wanted those um, lands outside of Charleston. They needed buffers from certainly the uh, the, the Native American um, populations, but more importantly, the Spanish who were just south of Charleston in Florida, who had a much stronger hold and was a constant threat to that port of Charleston. So bringing in Lutherans and um, the Jewish people and other, um, that was really a way of creating these settlements around the city of Charleston as a way to buffer them from the, the Spanish. So I'd like to turn now to um, a few questions we have from our audience. Um, one, one question is, um, you know, what, what do we know about the provenance of either the Petri coffee pot, Gary, that you showed or, or Dennis, the, the embroidered textile that you showed? Dennis, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, the one that I showed belongs to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. It was acquired in 1911, and it was a gift from a Harvard professor, Demon Walder Ross, um, which is, it's interesting to have that really early provenance. Um, Ross, though, was like a vacuum cleaner, and he bought everything, and you know, he bought a huge collection of Peruvian textiles, but also bought things from all over the world and eventually donated something like 11,000 different objects to the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. So having that provenance is great, but we often can't date it much earlier mm -hmm. than that. And as far as I know, we don't have any earlier history before 1911. 
Um, as far as the coffee pot goes, um, I have to update our online catalog because we've done some work on the provenance on this, and I don't think it's on there yet. Um, we acquired the Mezda, Mezda acquired it from a uh, at auction. Um, who it was a the sale from a Canadian collector. Um, he purchased it in London in the I believe 1950s or 1960s, and it was considered English at the time, but he recognized it as possibly um, Canadian or American, brought it back to Canada. Then it went to auction in New York in the 1980s. By that time, the AP mark had been recognized as a Charleston uh, silversmith and we acquired it. Um, the work I've been doing is actually trying to figure out how it got to England from Charleston. And if you, if you look at the inventory from Alexander Petrie, um, there is an un, a, a new chased coffee pot in his inventory valued at, um, I think, 40 pounds. And if you notice, there's no engraving in the cartouche of our uh, coffee pot. It's never been monogrammed. So it's very possible that our coffee pot is that coffee pot. I found out it was purchased by a, and I'm, the name's blanking on me right now, so I need to write it up on the online catalog. He was a loyalist uh, planner living outside of Charleston. He purchased the coffee pot. Um, he goes back to London um, and probably takes the coffee pot with him. And it stays in England being used as a British coffee pot, probably into the 20th century when it was sold to this Canadian collector who brought it back over the Atlantic and then came to us through auction through that way. So that's kind of what we think the provenance of our coffee pot is. Yeah, and that, that's that's really wonderful that we can try to at least create a, a really strong possibility for it. I mean, because so many objects, Dennis, like you were saying, I mean, you can get them back to somebody who collected in say the early 20th century, but trying to push them back earlier than that can be very, very difficult. Um, looking at the chat, it looks like a number of folks, you know, are really captivated to learn more about um, the arts of the Americas other than British North America. Dennis, I'm wondering if you could give them um, some suggestions of things they might read or look at to learn more about the different labor systems, artwork, um, just to sort of get get acquainted with um, with that material. Yeah, and that's a, it really interesting. Um, in terms of textiles, I there's a couple of catalogs that I would recommend. One, um, well, both of them came out of the Met. One is called the Colonial Andes, um, and it's a catalog that's both about textiles and silverwork, and it, it treats both indigenous um, craftsmen, but also um, colonial or vice regal. And it's, um, I think that would be a really good source as like an introduction. The photography is beautiful. Essays are wonderful. And there's also a more recent show um, done by the Met called the Interwoven Globe. Mm -hmm. which talks, you know, it, it, but it connects what's going on in Peru and Mexico with everything else that's going on, you know, globally at the same time. Um, I love that title, The Interwoven Globe, because textiles had such a key role in economies throughout the world and were key trade objects because they could be easily shipped. Um, so I would, I would start with those two. Those are really good sources. Um, and, you know, there, I think the great book on, uh, Latin American furniture making has yet to be written. Um, and there's been a lot of work done on Latin American silver, but I think it's found often in collection catalogs, but not in like a, a survey. So 
the knowledge of Latin American art, at least in the colonial period, is still developing and is still very much uh, a growing field. And there's a lot of work left to be done. So anyone who's interested in, I would encourage you to dive in. Me, trained as a, you know, a North Americanist, getting to work in Latin America was really, a, it was a wonderful um, kind of opening up of my interest in my, my career. Well, fantastic. And I mean, it is really fascinating. It's like suddenly discovering this whole, this whole area of study that's, that's just, just around the corner, but you never knew was there. Um, it looks like we are basically coming to an hour. And so I know many of our um, the folks with us are probably, um, you know, eager to get on to their next thing. But before we go, um, I just want to ask Dennis, anything at the Huntington that our audience should know about? Yeah, we've just, um, we're about to open a new exhibition of contemporary art um, called Made in LA. It's the Biennial of Los Angeles. And it's a big departure from anything we've done before at the Huntington um, because we're so focused on her historical collections. Uh, but this show will be the first one to open once we're permitted under COVID restrictions um, to open. And then we've got um, a few great shows kind of in the works about British portraiture and a few other things. So come wow. visit us in LA. I, uh, I cannot wait to, um, to find a way to get on an airplane and come out to California. Um, I miss traveling a lot, as do I think everybody else in the audience, which is one of the things that makes doing these, um, these programs so much fun. Um, Dennis, Gary, thank you so much for your time this evening and for sharing these unexpected connections between these two uh, very different things that globalization made possible. Um, for anybody wanting to deepen their knowledge even further, um, in addition to the resources that uh, Dennis gave, uh, a few other resources you might want to explore on your own. Um, the MFA Boston has one of my favorite online collections. I use it all the time. Uh, and you can check out uh, highlights and more from the Art of the Americas at their website, mfa.org. You can also learn more about the Petrie Coffee Pot with newly updated cataloging as well as our entire collection of silver at mesda.org. And you can also learn more about the labor behind that object and others uh, at a site that I'm a huge fan of, the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive at blackcraftspeople.org. And finally, two books. Um, the first, uh, a favorite of mine, Dennis's 2015 exhibit, Made in the Americas, The New World Discovers Asia, and also uh, Professor Chris Lane's 2019 book, Potosi, the silver city that changed the world. And finally, if you were as captivated by the global trade routes um, that the ships were taking in the um, 15th and 16th, 17th century, you might be interested in taking a look at what those global networks look like today. And there's a great visualization done by the University College of London of all the merchant ships at sea in 2012 at shipmap.org. And remember, your gift is what enables us to continue drawing these connections between things and bringing those conversations to you at home. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. Good night.